Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here to remind you that the Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from Left Turn Canada. Nora Loretto joins the show to talk about her new must-read book called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic, and it's a fantastic episode. She is one of Canada's premier political commentators, and uh, I just recommend you listen to it. But I'm also here to give you the latest pitch on why you should become a Progress Report recurring donor. And it's just that this week, we filed six Freedom of Information requests. Uh, These are sometimes also called FOIPs, you may have heard them, and we use them to pry information out of governments and public agencies in order to do the original investigative journalism that, you know, we do. Aside from this podcast, we also do that as well. And one of the FOIPs that I want to talk about (laughs) is going to the Edmonton Police Service to figure out just how much it's going to cost them to fix their $500,000 tank that they bought just last year after it ran into every tank's mortal enemy, a tree stump. Yes, it hit a tree stump, started spewing fluid everywhere, had to be towed away. Uh, the pictures, we put the pictures online, it's very funny. But that's just one FOIP. We get excellent tips all the time from people who are deep within government. And sometimes the best way to confirm these tips is with a FOIP request. But these things are not free. Even though this is public information held by a public body, they charge us $25 per request. And sometimes they even come back with ridiculously high fees just in order to provide this info to us. So if you have a few extra bucks to spare every month, the best way to support our independent investigative journalism is to become a regular donor. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and give what you can. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwachibuskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And we're on the banks of the Kasiskasa Wanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. And joining us today is Petra Schultz with Moms Stop the Harm, an organization of Canadian families that have been impacted by the opioid poisoning crisis. Petra, welcome back uh, to the Progress Report. Thank you, Duncan. It's always great to talk with you about the many exciting and often horrifying things that happen in this province. I know. I mean, literally, our last episode was also on the opioid poisoning crisis, but in a different way. (laughs) So it's like you could really do nothing but content about that and every week and you'd still be telling new stories every week. Petra, the reason we're having you on, the reason why we, we thought to have you on is that you, uh, with Mom Stop the Harm, the group that you're a part of, uh, have brought forward a lawsuit uh, with Mom Stop the Harm, as well as the Lef- Lef- sorry, the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society with uh, Avnish Nanda, who's also a friend of the pod, as your lawyer. And you've brought that uh, lawsuit forward, and it's actually in court next week. What can you tell uh, the audience about that lawsuit and why are you bringing it forward? Yeah, I mean, what I can tell the audience that I didn't wake up one morning um, and thought I should take my government to court. Um, uh, 
but lost actually many had many sleepless nights to came at the decision that this was the only only route that was left to us. Um, uh, Mom Stop the Harm and, and Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society, or otherwise called LOPS, uh, we are the uh, co-litigants on this case, and we are taking the province to court because they are implementing new guidelines for supervised consumption and over those prevention services. And these guidelines are um, so arduous and also they have some elements that will deter people from using them that we are afraid that these guidelines will result in a, in a loss of life. Um, so we want to, first of all, uh, stop the province from implementing the guidelines. So the, the lawsuit next week, um, the 15th and 16th on Wednesday and Thursday, um, it's an injunction hearing. So here we just first try to stop the province in their tracks. And um, then hopefully um, uh, our legal team tells us it can take one to two years to have the actual case heard in, in court. But if we can get an injunction, um, we can make sure people are protected and we can save lives. And what are the measures that the Alberta government is putting in place that, that is going to make it more difficult for people to use these supervised mm -hmm. consumption sites and by making it more difficult, make it more likely for people to die of opioid poisoning? Uh, the most sticky point, the most uh, concerning point are, uh, the, is the request for Alberta healthcare numbers. Um, that um, each and first they started out saying that it would be a requirement and that the province has already backpedaled on that and say, no, it's not a requirement, but it will be required to ask for it and people don't provide it, um, then they can still use a site. So the idea would be if, um, if I come in and you say to me, um, and I normally I wouldn't have given you my name, maybe I would have called myself Pat and you'd say, Pat, what's your healthcare number? And um, then I'd have to think about it. Wow, um, if I give my healthcare number that connects it with all the other health services I've ever had, will somebody find that out? Will Who will have access to the information? How can this information be used against me? And at that point, I might not even stay long enough to you telling me that I don't have to provide the number. I might just walk out. Or somebody might have told me I need to give my health number and I decided not to even come in in the first place. So that is a very, it's very, very problematic, this request for Alberta health and care numbers to be provided at consumption services. Okay, so the two things really jump out at me from hearing that. One is that like, uh, you're going to tie the like the use of a supervised consumption site to a healthcare number. Like, do you know, like, what your healthcare number lives on? Like, it lives on a, on a piece of paper that like, does anyone still have it in any kind of condition? Like our healthcare numbers, our healthcare cards that have our healthcare numbers on them are, are a joke. They're like, everyone makes fun of them. They, they fall apart to pieces. They're like, they're made of the thinnest of paper. And then two, like, why do you need a healthcare number to, or to sit in a booth and to like, you know, get access to a clean needle and like what what's the rationale that they're using to like oh you need to have this 
Well, the rationale, they have this um, terminology where they use uh, recovery-based um, ah, care, recovery. you know, yeah, reco- recovery-based system of care. So they say, well, if we want to connect people with recovery, we have to have their healthcare numbers. So if they want treatment, we know how to collect them. So that is one of the rationales they're using. They also um, are really um, have a very arduous reporting system for consumption services like somebody like lobs under this system they could probably not operate because you need um, computer equipment on site um, you need um, a database that is expensive you need a license you need people to operate it you need staff time and to provide an overdose prevention site you need a location like a lot of people lobs started out by setting up in a tent Mm -hmm. Um, You need people who care, people who know how to respond to an overdose. You need naloxone, ideally you need oxygen. You need a first aid kit and um, you need safe supplies for people. Um, You need some food, some snacks. You you need to have a a kind heart. That's what you need for an overdose prevention site. But then if you need a computer and you need network access, you need need an internet connection, you need an IT guy, you need, you need, you know, $20,000 worth of of bullshit in order to give people, uh, you know, safe supplies in order to use drugs so they don't die and to, and to hit them with some naloxone if, if they, if if they they go down batch, right? Yeah. 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 And the thing is really with supervised consumption and overdose prevention sites is that they are supposed to be low barrier. The goal is to keep people healthy and to save lives and and to connect with people. We always say meet people where they're at. Um, So um, asking for healthcare numbers is not low barrier, even if you make it optional. And if you make it optional, my concern with this always you give discretion and I have at pharmacies, um, um, my my oldest uh, gets daily medication for, for opioid use disorder. And um, I've witnessed, I've gone to pharmacies with them and I've witnessed pharmacy staff. Some are different, uh, some are outright hostile, some, t- some are really kind and friendly. And the ones who are indifferent and especially the ones who are hostile, they, pre- they always present a barrier to accessing the system. And if we have staff at the consumption side who have the option to be very easy on the healthcare question or be very hard on it, that again creates a huge barrier. And anybody who uses substances has had bad experiences with the health system because of the stigma, shame, and blame. Um, and anytime you connect people with the health system um, through the number, for example, that's a scary thing and something people want to avoid. And they'd maybe rather go outside and use somewhere alone, which puts them at an immense risk of overdose and dying. Yeah, it's, it's part of a pattern of behavior by this UCP government to, you know, you brought it up earlier, recovery-oriented focus. Um, You know, they view supervised consumption, they view essentially all harm reduction as, you know, something that they will maybe kind of tolerate, but they will, again, as you've shown, they'll, they'll put up barriers. They'll make it harder for people to use, you know, a supervised consumption site or an overdose prevention site, as opposed to just being like, hey, people are dying and we need to make sure that more people don't die. 
And I think it's time to just take a step back and consider the state of the opioid crisis uh, in Alberta right now, because it's still bad. Uh, 2020 was the worst year on record for deaths from opioid poisonings with 1,316. And 2021 is on track to be the worst year on record for opioid poisoning deaths. There was, between January and August, there were 1,026. And so if trends hold, and they likely uh, are going to hold based on some other stuff I'm going to talk about, we will see a new record. And every year since like 2013, it goes up every year. Like the opioid poisoning crisis is an ongoing disaster that is slowly unfolding in front of our eyes. It is. And and for me, as somebody who's lost a loved one, I, I, um, our youngest, Danny, died in 2014. And um, I, I can't look at when these statistics come out. To me, they are not numbers. They're people who were loved. Everybody was somebody, someone. I think about their families, you know, with holidays coming up. I know how hard it is to have that, that empty chair at your table. And I know how it, how hard it is, you know, for the inner city communities who've been losing so many of, of their in their, like, even if you, even if you have your street family, it's a family. And um, uh, there are losses that people mourn. There are losses all over. But I have the feeling that our government actually doesn't care if Albertans live or die. Um, and I, I always suspected that, but COVID really told me that because their COVID response was so laissez-faire in the summer, like so ignorant where they didn't act on things. And um, uh, people were dying in increased numbers. Um, and it's not just those with COVID who are filling up the emergency rooms and the ICUs. It's also people with other health conditions like cancer who got delayed care because of all of that. And it made me realize, you know, it's not just people who use drugs where they don't care if they live on die or die. They, they live by their dogma and giving money to their friends and uh, staying in power. And everybody else in this province seems to be collateral damage. Yeah. I mean, last podcast, literally the last podcast we did, uh, we were breaking down a, uh, a bit of misinformation from EPS about fentanyl and how, you know, it's this page on the EPS website and it's like, yeah. oh, if a few grains of fentanyl touch your skin, you could die or whatever, which is, of course, hilariously wrong and incorrect. But the, the this page was published in like 2015 because the stats they had was like, oh, yeah, in 2014, 100 people died of fentanyl overdoses. And it, it's 2021, and we are literally going to be like 10, 11 times that number. Not, it, nothing, it has not gotten worse. It has gotten worse. It has not gotten better. It has gotten worse every year since that page was published. It is wild to me that this is not like a five-alarm fire where the entire resources of the state are being put to use to make sure more people don't die. But it is, as you said, this this government just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> No, they, they they don't. They they really don't. And and if you think about it, what has COVID has also really made things worse, for a couple of reasons. One is um, the of course the disruption in the supply routes. Um, you know the old supply chain that we all hear about um, doesn't just apply to uh, to what you buy at your local supermarket. That also uh, supply. Uh, uh, 
and applies to substances. And um, substances just have become a lot more toxic. Uh, they're more wild mixes with benzodiazepines mixed in with opioids, um, something we hadn't seen before. And the other issue is that because of COVID, we were all told to stay apart. And if you use, the most dangerous situation to be in is to be alone. Because if you overdose and you're alone, there is nobody there who can assist you. And um, social distancing resulted in services going to reduce capacity. So it was just like a perfect storm. In 2019, we actually held our own a bit on the numbers and they even went down a smidgen. And in 2019, before the UCP won the election, I, I felt hopeful that maybe we could we were going in a direction where we could get a handle on this. But um, ever since they got into power, it got worse. They made things worse. They fight a war against harm reduction. And um, uh, COVID has just made it exponentially worse. Yeah, and when we talk about how we're, we're going to set a new record for opioid poisoning deaths in 2021, uh, like we're on track to, like literally yesterday, we're recording this on, on Thursday, December 8th. So like, or sorry, it's Thursday, December 9th. Literally yesterday on December 8th, the Canadian press put out a report which was picked up widely by all major news sources you know, with the headline, opioid-related emergency medical, emergency medical calls spike in Alberta's biggest cities. You know, the quote here is, emergency medical services responded to 140 opioid-related calls in Edmonton and 85 in Calgary between November 29th and December 5th. Alberta Health Services says this is higher and higher than average and notes it is working with local agencies to understand the circumstances and what immediate supports are needed. It's like, again, this is a, a ongoing disaster. Every day someone dies from an opioid poisoning and usually more than one. And it's, 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 it's absolutely wild. Um, you brought it up. Let's let's get into it. the The UCP response has been, again, actively. Uh, there's they've shown active antipathy and hostility towards harm reduction and supervised consumption sites. They've shut down supervised consumption sites in Edmonton and Calgary and Lethbridge, uh, replacing them usually with with what like poorer or smaller, kind of pale imitations of what used to be. Isn't that right? Well, in Calgary, actually, they didn't. Sh they the one they took away the mobile site just before it was open. So technically, yes, in in, in reality, they shut it down by, by not letting it open. But um, uh, what they what they did um, with that mobile unit when they shut down Arches in Lethbridge, which was the largest consumption site in all of North America, probably one of the largest globally, um, had was open twenty four hours a day and had uh, twenty four booths to inject and probably another six for inhalation. Uh, was the first one with inhalation. Um, when they shut that down, they replaced it with a mobile site that had three seats, but only used two because of social, because of physical distancing with COVID. So you go from almost accommodating 30 people to accommodating two. Um, and then they parked it outside of a shelter where a lot of people were staying. So people were feeling stigmatized and watched and observed and stayed away. And Lethbridge now has a um, the highest number in all of Alberta. And and yesterday I saw a tweet from Terrell, uh, Terrell Tailfeathers who said uh, 200 
200 people off the blood tribe, 200 members have died um, recently due to over opiate overdoses. I'm not certain of the time frame. I think he was talking this year, but it's heartbreaking. Indigenous people are five times as likely to die um, and five times as likely to be hospitalized for drug poisoning event. And um, that that really um, comes a lot from shutting down those sites that actually supported people. And in Edmonton, again, they shut down the biggest site. People ask me, well, why do we have so many more ambulance calls in Edmonton than Calgary? Well, it's obvious. They shut down the, the site at uh, Boyle Street Community Services and expanded a bit at Spady, but um, we are down five booths, five spaces where people could use and, and just an amazing staff team here in Edmonton due to their, that shutdown. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought up Terrell Tailfeathers because he has you know, made the analogy to this, again, murderous necropolitics of the UCP, this anti-harm reduction, anti-supervised consumption site politics of the UCP as, as you know, clearing the planes 2.0, right? Like a reference to the genocidal policies of starvation of the Canadian state that happened to Indigenous folks who lived on the plains like 150 years ago. And again, not enough people are kind of like putting this crisis in that context and and Terrell is and it's it's worthwhile to think about it that way the you know the the UCP have constantly talked about you know recovery 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 recor- recovery oriented care and getting people the support they need but you know and they like to brag about how many recovery spaces they've created they they've 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 flipped the conversation from like oh yeah like we're not going to talk about how more people are dead of opioid poisonings this year than ever before we're going to talk about how many recovery spaces we've opened but what does this focus on recovery over everything else mean practically for like you know the people on the ground petra well recovery i'm waiting for them to f- find a way for my son to recover my son's dead he's not coming back um, recovery uh, is help focusing on treatment for people is important, but we have to first keep people alive. The dead don't recover. That's just the bottom line. The dead don't recover. And we can't replace recovery with, uh, we can't replace harm reduction with recovery. We need um, to first focus that people are well, that they stay alive, that they stay as healthy as possible. And the other thing with their recovery rhetoric, most of the recovery they talk about is abstinence-based, which is scientifically proven not to be effective for what physicians call opioid use disorder. when you use fentanyl um, or, or, or any similar substance, um, abstinence is not the way to go. You go on what's called opioid agonist treatment, you go on methadone, you go suboxone, you go on cadian substances like that, or we have the injectable opioid agonist treatment program that another lawsuit, thanks, thanks to um, Avanish Nanda's good work, um, we stopped that from being shut down, but it's not being expanded. So when they talk recovery, they're not focusing on evidence-based treatment. And when they call talk about spaces, like Kenny likes to say so-called harm reduction. I say so-called spaces. We're trying to do the math on those spaces because I always talk to families who say, I can't get my loved one in. It's, it's several weeks. How are they going to live several more weeks? I need to get somebody in now into detox or into treatment. And 
what they they are not creating any new spaces. They're just moving around how they pay them um, instead of through the income support program, through health or stuff that used to be private user pay is now government pay, which in itself, granted, is a good thing that people don't have. But they're not they're not new or additional spaces like they have not created 4000 or 8000 spaces. And the other thing that really bugs me that they have this horrible reporting system that they want to impose on um, supervised consumption site. Try to find a report on any of these recovery facilities. How many, <laughs> yes. how many people went? Um, what happened to these people? Uh, how did they do afterwards? Well, they can, that's think, the one thing they can tell you, Petra, is they can tell you how many people went through the program because they get paid you know, by, yeah. by how many people go through their programs. But like we uh, we wrote a, a story, um, Jeremy Appel for the Progress Report wrote a story for um, for us essentially on the like recovery industry earlier this year, trying to find out who benefits from this recovery approach. And like the answer he got from some from from a spokesperson for an organization that runs one of these recovery sites was so like airy fairy. It's like, well, what is success? Is it is it a month without using? Is it a year? Is it it's a, it's all about a continuing you know, focus on sobriety and wellness. And it's like, motherfucker, like you're getting paid big dollars to put people through this recovery mm -hmm. program and you can't even demonstrate that you're doing any good. I can tell you what success is saving lives, keeping people alive and well. That in my books is success. Everything else is just, just gaslighting is what, what they're doing. And I can also tell you what happens in and after the recovery programs. We have new members in a grief support group here in Alberta. Um, one had a child who died in, a, in one of these programs, one that is uh, been touted by a politician recently, and the other one died right after coming out of this program. Um, right after abstinence-based recovery is when the overdose death risk goes up exponentially. Mm, yeah, I mean, if people are going to be dying in police holding cells, people are definitely going to be dying of, of opioid poisonings in these like so-called in these recovery centers, yeah. right? And and the point you make about like yes, if you haven't used, if you've if you've dried out, and then you get out of recovery, and then you get your first hit, like you're saying that's that's one of the most riskiest times for for. Uh, you know, death and injury from an opioid poisoning, right? Well, because you've lost your tolerance. A physician friend explained this to me that it takes time to build up opioid tolerance and uh, to tolerate a certain dose and people sort of hit a dose that they're comfortable in. And then, then when they haven't used for a while, they have to guess. Uh, and then the street drugs are so toxic as well. It's even hard to guess what's in there. Um, so without the tolerance and the toxic drugs, the risk is huge um, of overdosing and dying after. And that is for people who come out of these recovery centers, come, for people who come out of jail cells, um, and uh, even people who come out of hospital sometime if the hospital doesn't uh, maintain them on the substances that they are using. Interesting. So there, there are a couple of recent news hooks about the opioid poisoning crisis that, mm -hmm. that I think we that we have to talk about. And that is, you know, Jason Kenney and an associate minister of mental health and addictions, Mike Ellis, have stated publicly that they're going to be they're going to be starting up a select legislative committee on safe supply. And then right after the announcement that they were doing that, they, they didn't spend several minutes uh, slagging the idea of safe supply. 
why don't before we get into what is sure to be a farce from the UCP here, can you walk our audience through like what safe supply is and, and why mm-hmm. people who use drugs are advocating for it? Yeah, um, well, safe supply can be described as providing pharmaceutical alternatives um, to toxic street drugs. And there are a few safe supply models in Canada. The only one available to people right now is via a prescription pad. So we've made the physician um, and the gatekeeper in that role, but uh, in that uh, situation. But um, people are prescribed in most cases. Um, it's hydromorphone or what people know as Dilaudid. Um, that they would get Dilaudid um, to replace um, what they are otherwise using from the street. Um, in some programs in BC, they're also experimenting because so many people are on fentanyl now, not because they want to be on fentanyl, but because but because it's the only thing that's available. Uh, so at a program in Victoria, at Vic Safer, they are also um, starting to offer people or are offering people fentanyl patches um, to replace their fentanyl. Um, so, and what that does when we give people safer supply, of course, um, they're, they're less likely to overdose and die. If you look at BC's overdose stats, and they've always been better than we are in keeping numbers, they for the longest time hovered between 200 and 250 until 2012 when we took OxyContin away by reformulation to OxyNeo and when fentanyl entered the market, it was going up and up and up. So sometimes people have this argument, oh, people are dying uh, of these pharmaceutical opioids anyways. And well, yeah, some people are also dying from wine and beer, but most of us are not. Um, you know, there, with any substance, there are some risks, but by having a controlled substance, you really mitigate that risk. And the other good uh, aspect of it, if you have to find $200, $500, $700 a day to uh, buy um, uh, street drugs, um, you have to engage in certain activities to find that money, right? So when we give people safe supply, we also make communities safer. And um, we reduce uh, some of the risks um, that come for individuals and communities in trying to um, engage, find that money, such as you know sex work and 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 all kinds of other things that are risky for people who have to engage in that to find the money to buy drugs. Yeah, I mean, we we have safe supply for all sorts of drugs, right? Like we, I am able to go to the liquor store and know that the wine I am buying is not going to turn me blind. I'm able to go into a cannabis store. And know that what I'm buying is is actually cannabis. <laughs> you know, I'm able to go to a coffee shop and be sure that a that a that a professional who knows what they're doing with coffee is able to pull me a shot of espresso. Yeah, exactly. And the, the model, as I said, the model we have in Canada for safe supply is a prescriber model. But um, there is a group um, in BC, uh, it's called the Drug User Liberation Front. They've kind of taken that a step further. And they have said that really we have to look at a situation where we let adults make adult decisions and provide a model that um, gives autonomy to people who use substances. And uh, they are looking at compassion clubs, which were used when um, uh, people first got HIV AIDS medication that wasn't available. And they were used uh, early on when medical cannabis wasn't legalized yet. So kind of that model where people who use kind of buy in bulk and then distribute amongst each other, keeping each other safe. And some people say, oh, what about if the kid down the block um, comes and wants to buy drugs? And 
Um, you know, any any drug you purple person who uses drugs that I've ever met, they um, they can tell within half a second that wine is my substance. That I can talk about opioids um, and I can talk about methamphetamine, but um, you know, it's like a foreign language to me. And and they can tell immediately. So these compassion clubs would keep people safe. But that that is kind of safe supply. You know the the next phase right now in Alberta. If we could get a prescriber model of safe supply, that would go a long way in keeping people safer and healthier, and and connecting them to meaningful health services. Yeah, like if if people are dying of is is a poison drug supply, if making sure that they are using drugs that are not poison. Uh, yes. It seems to be a way that would keep them alive. But yes, like so that this this committee in, uh, on safe supply was announced. Then Mike Ellis went to say a bunch of ridiculous things about safe supply and what it was that were just untrue or stupid. And um, and so I, I think it's probably correct to expect more of the same on this government. I don't think they finally find religion on on how or why safe supply is a good idea, considering all their prior statements on it. And this is, again, a pattern of behavior, right? Like they, they commissioned a study on supervised consumption sites that was just bad, bad science. It, it was confirmation bias from the very beginning. It was actually embarrassing that the, the government of Alberta produced this. And it had real harm, not only in Alberta, but across the across the world where other jurisdictions uh, who are seeking to kind of, uh, you know, punish people who use drugs, use this Alberta study as, as evidence for why they should, you know, roll back supervised consumption sites or harm reduction stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's disgusting, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you talk, they, they've accepted the frame of safe supply. Uh, and so I don't know how they're going to try and turn safe supply into a bad thing. Because again, if people, if what people are dying is, is poison, let's give them stuff that isn't poison. But uh, I'm sure they'll 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 do some evil thing on this. The the other uh, news hook on this file that I think is worth talking about is a story that was broken recently by Alana Smith with the Canadian Press, formerly of uh, Post Media, and that is a a bit of an interrogation of what exactly uh, how many people are using the digital overdose <laughs> response system, which was an app, which was much ballyhooed by uh, Jason Kenney and and the UCP as this kind of like digital techno fix for you know to prevent opioid poisoning deaths and I, I think the general premise is fine uh you know if, if you're going to use drugs alone call into this app and if you you know if you black out someone will call 911 for you is that is that a fair kind of like short description of what the app is supposed to do well there are kind of two two different approaches and and talking about the app this app makes me so mad. It makes me so mad in so many ways because a year and a half ago, we had a virtual uh, supervised consumption site, an Alberta homegrown virtual supervised consumption site ready to go with trained staff and an and a excellent system. And they shut it down a day before it was supposed to go live. So we could have had that to save lives. Then in March, when they announced their app, um, there, there already is a national overdose prevention service, and there is a lifeguard app and the Be Brave app. All those three systems are tried, proven, functioning. People are using them. They save lives. But no, because Alberta has such a stellar record in app development, as we have seen from the, um, the COVID uh, <laughs> tracing app, no, we build our own. We spend $325,000 that we could maybe spend on ads, ads to tell people about the other ones to build our own. 
And, um, you know, have you ever downloaded an app and not used it? Um, I, I clean up my phone every so often because somebody says, oh, you should try this. And then you download and they say, no, I wouldn't really need this. So so when they have 230, like 650 downloads and 230 registered users, I would like to know how many people have ever used it while they were using substances. How many um, adverse events, uh, drug poisoning events have they responded to? What's the outcome of those responses? On the Lifeguard app, you see it right on their homepage. If you go, if you Google Lifeguard um, Guard app, then it tells you right on their homepage how many lives they have saved. Um, you can also go to Mom Stop the Harm, um, our resources on overdose. Um, we link all the apps there, except for the Alberta app. We won't link that. And it's until it's proven to be wor working, because I would not put my life into the hands of this government to tell you the truth. The information that you're talking about, you know, how many lives has this saved? How many people have actually used it and, and used the app while using um, while using drugs? They refused to release that information to the reporter, which I think shows just how much uh, this app has been used. Um, but yeah, just um, another kind of like instance of our government just needlessly making the problem worse. Again, there's, if there's a solution that works, use it. You don't have to create a, a special bespoke made in Alberta solution for everything, especially if you've already got something that already works. Yeah. And what is actually interesting that they uh, cited privacy concerns over not releasing the data, uh, whereas, um, you know, we have huge privacy concerns over the data they are wanting to collect in, in consumption services. And, and they are releasing all kinds of data that one should have privacy concerns over. So, so that's, it's really not an argument that holds water. And I, I encourage um, everyone who, um, who maybe uses alone to check out the other two apps. There is a difference between them. One, the lifeguard works like the Alberta one where you, you basically you, you interact with the app and tell them, tell the app that you are alert. It gives you alarms and you have to tell it that you are alert. And if not, it dispatches uh, 911. Whereas the Be Brave and the National Overdose Prevention Hotline, you actually talk to a, um, a real human, um, in many cases volunteers, and you can kind of customize your response, which is important. Like if you're in rural Alberta these days, you don't want to trust an ambulance to get to you. Like when you overdose, you have minutes, you don't have an hour. Uh, so in those cases, it's better to use an app like um, Be Brave or the, the national hotline where you can negotiate and say, hey, my, my neighbor has a key to my house and my neighbor has a, um, a naloxone kit and my neighbor is home and this is my neighbor's number. Um, so you can um, you can make different arrangements. So I, I encourage people to check out that information because it is life saving. They are great tools if you don't screw them up. And finally, I think the last uh, kind of news hook here to talk about is the city of Toronto recently moved to decriminalize small amounts of drugs uh, under what's called a Section 56 exemption. Uh, you know, we covered this on the last podcast, but it is worth bringing up again. Uh, any municipality or provincial government can request this. Uh, Vancouver, BC, and Toronto have all requested this. The federal government still has not uh, assented to those requests, so it's worth keeping an eye on what the federal government does on this. But I actually did a bit of reporting, Petra, a bit of journalism, and I actually reached out to the government of Alberta uh, about whether they would move to decriminalize drugs. And here is their response, and I think it's worth quoting in full uh, just to 
to kind of see the internal contradictions you get just even within a couple of sentences. This was their response to uh, my question about whether they would move to decriminalize. Quote, Alberta's government believes in dealing with addiction as a healthcare issue while keeping communities safe. We are focused on improving access to treatment and recovery services that end the cycle of drug use. We believe that comprehensive and accessible system of care must be in place before decisions regarding the criminal justice system are made. Well, <laughs> so if you're if you're if you really believe in dealing with addiction as a mental health as a healthcare issue, then why don't you make sure that people who use drugs see get healthcare instead of jail time? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the decision has been made. They have made the decision to deal with it as a criminal justice matter. Uh, they talk about stuff like minimum sentences for dealers and all these things. With every one of them, you know, my litmus test that I use is the one simple question I have. Does it save lives? And if it doesn't, then let's do something different. Let's do something better. Let's do something that's proven to save lives. And to be honest, on decrim, a decrim alone will not save life, but lives. It has to be paired with safer supply because under decrim, um, the substance is still illicit, but just possession of, of smaller amounts for personal use is is not, or I should correct that. Um, this this Under the system, the substance is still an illegal substance, but the possession of small amounts um, is no longer a, a criminal offense. Um, so we need to pair it with safe supply. Um, and, and that is really something that um, has been shown in the discussion with people who use. Yeah, de decrim is mostly just like a dignity thing for people who use drugs, as well as a way to get cops off of the backs of people who use drugs, right? Like, yeah. if you decrim drugs, then it's like, okay, well, the cops aren't just going to snatch the fucking drugs of everyone they come across. They're not going to take their pipes, their paraphernalia. It's, it's yeah, it's not going to like save lives in and of itself on its own. But it is, a, it is does allow people to live with like dignity, uh, as opposed to now where they're treated with such stigma. Oh, it's, uh, the stigma is huge. What stigmatizes more than a criminal record? Like a criminal record is, is life-changing. There are all kinds of jobs, education, travel, places to live. There are so many things, uh, just doors shut into people face, people's faces all over with a criminal record. And I think if we take decrim seriously, what we need to do is also expunge past records. Um, that is really a step that, ha that has to go hand in hand with it. So again, any government, any level, so the government, the, the municipal government of Edmonton, the municipal government of Calgary, shit, the, the Council of Acme, Alberta, or Zama City, uh, all the way from Athabasca to Zama, could decriminalize drugs if they wanted to. And there is a, a handy thing that just came out earlier today. The Canadian Drug po Policy Coalition released uh, you know, a, a, a platform for drug decriminalization in Canada called Decrim done right, a rights-based path for a rights-based path for drug policy. You know, we'll link to it in the show notes. Again, if you were a city councilor, if you work for a city councilor, if you uh, ever talk to your city councilor, if you have their email or their phone number, decrim is something that they can immediately start moving on. Which again is just going to give people who use drugs the dignity that they need, and and the the decriminalization is just key to getting these people out of the criminal system and treating, uh, you know, addiction and the opioid crisis as a healthcare uh, crisis and not as a criminal crisis. Yeah. If I can add another tool to that, we have a, a motion to municip municipalities. It's sort of a bit of a decrim light approach that any 
any listener could take to their local municipality, Edmonton passed, uh, uh, passed that motion in part. And basically what it calls, it, it brings the points forward, uh, people discuss it, they educate themselves, and then a council can, can pass a motion to call on the federal government to decriminalize. Because we have to remember that Vancouver, Toronto, the province of BC, and everyone else who's looking at decrim wouldn't have to do that if uh, our federal government wouldn't be so gutless on this issue. They really are the ones who need to move it, move it and could make it happen for the entire country. Yes. I mean, ultimately, yeah, they just need federally. It's a criminal code thing. It just needs to be. I mean, prosecutors aren't prosecuting uh, simple possession. Like that is a directive that went out last year. Like it, it is just a cop thing, right? Where cops will use the fact that it's illegal to take drugs, to snatch it from people, to use it, to search people and put people in the criminal justice system. And, uh, again, that doesn't help people. We know that it doesn't help people. We know that it actively harms people, especially if they have mental illness issues or substance addiction issues. Um, but I, I feel we're coming to the end of our time here, Petra. And one thing uh, that we like to, to close out here with is that steps people can take to uh, actually help out. Because again, this is a crisis. It is ongoing. We do need everyone to help out. We can't just depend on elected officials to solve this problem. It is going to be on us. Uh, what, what do you recommend to folks uh, for, for action they can take to, to, to you know, to, uh, to help ameliorate this crisis? Well, the first thing everybody can do if they haven't already done so, go and get yourself a naloxone kit. Go to your nearest pharmacy, pick up a kit. We have a video on our website that shows you how to use it. The pharmacist will also give you some basic explanation and, and carry that, that kit visibly. So it makes a statement that you are prepared to help and people can reach out to you. Um, then there are also a lot of local groups you can can support financially if you can. Um, you, could, you can support um, our lawsuit financially if you if you're able um uh, it's not, it's not easy taking your government to court and it's not cheap either on the on the nanda law website um there's a link to to a blog where you can also support and um then of course there are a lot of groups locally in edmonton calgary like uh, boots on ground uh, the bear clan and um uh, street cats in calgary and the great people from aware who go out every day you can support these organizations. They're literally on the ground talking to people every day and, and giving out anything from naloxone to harm reduction supplies to gloves, hats, and clean socks, hand warmers, and snacks. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend volunteering with one of these street outreach groups. Um, you know, I've done it a bunch. You know, there's Bear Clan, there's harm reduction support, there's Boots on the Ground, there's Water Warriors, and those are just the ones in Edmonton. Uh, you know, you, Petra named a couple of the ones that operate in Calgary. You know, there it's not hard work. Ultimately, you know, dress warm, talk to people, give them the stuff they need. Like it's it is a fantastic way to just kind of like, oh yeah, like thirteen hundred people dead. That kind of means nothing uh until you actually be like oh you talk to someone and they're like you know a bunch of their friends have died in the past five years and they're scared that it's going to happen to them and uh and so yeah i would i would recommend doing the street outreach stuff it's it's it's, it's good for the soul to be honest um i'd also recommend talk to your local counselor and mla and mp about yeah safe supply decriminalization those are two big things uh legislatively that need to move if we want to actually see 
a decrease in deaths from opioid poisoning. <laughs> and I think it's also good, I mean, to to close on, like, if you have friends or family who do use drugs, don't make it scary for them. Don't stigmatize them. Talk to them about them, frankly. Everybody uses drugs of one sort or the other. And if people are afraid to use around you, that just means that they are more likely to die. That is that is sadly true and, and so important. Um, when somebody discloses to you or if they're feeling the use substance, don't blame and shame. That is the most important thing. And, you know, and uh, res- respond with empathy and and with support and thank people for reaching out for support that that is really the beginning if somebody can turn to you you know if i could do it again duncan if i instead of danny hiding his substance use from me if i could be there with danny with an oloxone kit um in hand um instead of finding him later in his apartment i would give the world for that Mm -hmm. exactly well, I think that is a good place to leave it. Um, yeah, that's a, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, Petra. We, uh, we're going to close it out today. I'm not even going to ask for money today. I'll, there's an ask for money up, up off the front. Um, if people want to follow along with what you're doing, Petra, what's the best way? What communication channels do you use uh, so people can follow along with the work that you're doing? Um, we have um, your mom stop the harm at mom stop the harm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, um, and um, momstoptheharm.com is our website. And we welcome people to join us: families who have lost loved ones, families who have loved ones who are living with substance use who maybe need support, and um, we encourage uh, professional and other allies to join us as well. Yeah, great organization. You know, get on their mailing list, follow their social media. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, that's it for the podcast today, folks. If you have any notes, thoughts, comments, you think I need to hear, I am very easy to find. I am on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing the podcast as always. Thank you to Cosmic Fam Communist for our theme. Thank you to Petra for being an incredible guest once again. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>